Before I begin with the message this morning, I wanted to let you know that today is a day that has been deemed International Holocaust Remembrance Day. This was uh, first initiated by the UN in 2005, and it is to commemorate the murder of over 6 million Jews, 5 million Slavs, 3 million ethnic Poles, 200,000 Romanis or Gypsies, 250,000 mentally and physically disabled, and 9,000 homosexuals uh, during the Nazi regime in um, during World War II. The term Holocaust is a term that basically derives from the same word that means a burnt offering. It is somewhat debated as to whether that's an appropriate term uh, to identify that which uniquely occurred in World War II. That's another issue. People use the word Holocaust to describe other things, but but there was nothing else that's ever happened or will happen until the tribulation like the Holocaust. The stated goal of the Third Reich was the elimination of all Jews on the planet. It wasn't, the goal wasn't just Europe. It was the entire world. And in fact, there were many Jews who were rounded up and murdered in North Africa who lived there under, uh, when the Nazis occupied parts of North Africa. In Israel, they used the term Shoah. Shoah is from a Hebrew word that means destruction. And I think that's probably a better term, but generally speaking, I, I don't get concerned which term you use. There are some Jews that are a little bit inclined one to the other for different reasons. Some reasons are good and some reasons are, are, are not so good. But it is important that there is a remembrance of what took place. It is the fruit of anti-Semitism. And I hope that you have listened to, were either here or watched live uh, or as we live streamed or will watch the uh, class from this past Thursday night. It was a recording of a message from the pre-trib rapture meeting back in December. And the speaker was Olivier Melnick. And his sort of his focus and his area of expertise is in the Holocaust and the uh, his uh, mother was a Jew living in France during World War II. He is a, uh, a Christian. He is a missionary working with chosen people uh, ministries. And so you will find that interesting. What is happening today is there is a, a scary and dangerous rise of anti-Semitism in Europe. There's a rise of Holocaust denial, which is absurd, and there is a rise of more and more anti-Semitic things happening in this country. In fact, this last election cycle, at least three anti-Semites were elected to the House of Representatives, and they're very vocal, and they will be activists in that way. Scripture promises, based on the Abrahamic covenant, with God's promise to Abraham that those who bless him, 
doesn't say those who bless Israel when they're obedient, those who bless Israel when they're spiritual, those who bless Israel when they're obeying the Lord. It says those who bless you, I will bless those who treat you with disrespect, it's a different word for curse there. King James translates both words with the same word curse, but literally it means those who treat you with disrespect, I will judge harshly. And this is evidence, even when Israel is in their most reprobate, idolatrous state in the Old Testament, those who were anti-Semitic were punished by God. So even today, this is true. The covenant with Abraham is an everlasting covenant, and it is a promise as well that those who bless Israel will be blessed. So I encourage you to stay up to date and be aware of these trends that are going on today. Before we open God's word together, let me just take us before the throne of grace and ask his guidance on our study this morning. Our Father, we're so grateful that we can come together. We still have freedom in this nation, freedom that is under attack. It is under attack in the state legislature of Texas. There are bills proposed that, that virtually desire to shut down any expression of Bible-believing Christians. Uh, it is stemmed from the perversions of the uh, LGBTQ movement and uh, their desire to shut down anyone who says that there are moral issues here and that what they uh, advocate is wrong and immoral. And, Father, there the hate, the bile, the bitterness that we see from different quarters of this country uh, seeking to shut down the influence of the Bible increase each year. May we remain faithful May we realize that you will honor your word and it will not go forth in vain, and that even if we face severe persecution in this country for our faith, we know that you will bless us richly spiritually and that there are many promises where you will faithfully support us even unto death. And, Father, we pray that as we study your word today that we may, uh, from the study of your word, just catch a greater glimpse of your eternal purpose and your glory, that we might learn to live uh, in light of your plan for us, your plan for eternity, that we might recognize the role that our current life has in terms of our uh, eternal purposes, our eternal role in the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ as well as into eternity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to refocus our slideshow since I'm skipping what we had for... There we go. We are looking still at these verses, three verses, Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 5. These are critical verses. I have not drilled down in Ephesians like I have, and I think that it is probably in the wisdom of God's plan that uh, in my ministry I haven't taught Ephesians until I had other things well uh, well in hand and understood. Uh, I always like being able to go to Kiev and go over there for two weeks because uh, the teaching responsibilities I have there are not those that demand my paying a whole lot of attention to my notes. I teach rewards and judgments 
uh, every odd year, and on the even years, I teach dispensationalism. And I teach from basically the same notes, although for half of this course, I teach off the top of my head. Jim always says, I, I want your notes. I said, my brain doesn't have a print key. I just worked through 1 Corinthians 3 on the judgment seat of Christ and 2 Corinthians 5, and then I go through all the overcomer passages and the different rewards and the seven letters to the seven churches, and I've taught this so many times now that I really, uh, really don't have any kind of notes that I can put out for the students. And a lot of times it's interesting from their perspective to hear their questions. Students that come out of a pagan background, students that come out of a Soviet socialist background, do not look at the text the same way that you and I do. And the questions they ask are sometimes more perceptive Sometimes they're a little bit irritating because they just don't seem to be able to put A and B together and come up with the right answer. Other times they just ask questions in order to see if I'm going to give the same answer as three other professors who've touched on the same topic. And back when Margaret was our translator, Margaret said to me one day, she said, it's just absolutely amazing that all of you pastors that come over here all are in about 99.9% agreement. Now, this is from a woman at that time. She was in her mid-70s, and she had been translating uh, Christian leaders and pastors for many years who came over to uh, the Soviet Union. She had translated for Josh McDowell. She had translated for uh, any number of other big names, some that were more biblical, some less biblical. Uh, but she commented, she said, you guys that come over here are just so close that it is such an encouragement to the students that no matter who they ask, they all get basically the same answer. You believe in free grace gospel, dispensationalist. You all believe in the importance of confession of sin and the distinctions of rewards and all of these things that, that, that we teach. And so it's good, and it's good to listen to the students. One of the things that I discovered, I've noticed this for many years and thought about it this time, is that I'm addressing a group of 11 or 12 students who've heard different things. Some of them haven't been saved long. Some of them have been saved a long time. Some of them have a little English. Some are more fluent. Some have no English whatsoever. So we always, with the translators, so there's a, three to five second delay between every sentence and I've had to learn to use very short sentences that's a challenge for me I have sentences like Paul more than I do Peter and or John and um, so as we go through this I will say something and then the translator will translate it so I've got four or five seconds to think about how I'm going to say the next thing and I can watch facial expressions and read where there may be some confusion or they don't get it or whatever. And I'll look at the text, and I have the Greek text there, and I'll think about it. And I often come up with ways of explaining a passage uh, or explaining something that's a a little more basic. And I I wish I could just remember to write all these things down because that was really good, but I never remember it, so I don't. 
I don't uh, ever have a record of it to go back, but it's important at times to just stop and go more slowly. Well, that's sort of what's happened, what happened as I was studying this week. As you know, as we've gotten into these first verses in Ephesians, they address some pretty challenging ideas, things that people have spent years and years debating and uh, going over trying to understand just how does a sovereign God rule over his creation and accomplishes his purpose and at the same time allow his creatures a measure of autonomy, a measure of of freedom and responsibility to serve him or not, to uh, believe the gospel or not. And in philosophy, you have two extremes. One is an extreme that just uh, uh, advocates total uh, total autonomy for man and total free will. And at the other extreme in philosophy, you have pure determinism and fatalism. And the church has always imitated the philosophical views of whatever uh, era and whatever culture seems to dominate at the time. And so there are some interesting things that have come up and come out of this. And one of the things that I learned uh, on this last trip was that the ideas that normally are expressed as Calvinism in Western culture were not an issue in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And that's due to various uh, ways of thinking that developed as a result of philosophical uh, emphases in in the West that did not impact uh, did not impact the East. And so there are no debates like this going on in the in the Eastern Church. And there are some other reasons and other factors for that. But that that's what's that's what's going on. But these are important issues. And we also have to face the fact and recognize the fact that that often we have poor or slightly off-track translations, and there are several reasons for that. You may not know much about your history of your English-speaking Bible, but one of the early translators was a uh, Roman Catholic priest by the name of Wycliffe. And Wycliffe translated the Bible into the vernacular. This was in about the uh, 14th century into the uh, vernacular of the English language. The next major person to translate the Bible into English was William Tyndale some 200 years later. And studies have shown that about 75 or 80 percent, I'm going off of memory here, uh, percent of the words that are used in the King James Bible and in some Revised Standard Version and other subsequent Bibles are the same words that were used by Tyndale. And there are certain verses that have been translated the same way for so, so long that any diversion of translation causes an uproar among the people in the pew. For sometimes this has been for a good reason. For example, when the RSV came out in the 1950s, they did not translate uh, Alma, the word for virgin that should be understood as virgin in Isaiah 7:14 is virgin. 
they translated it young woman. And so this was seen as a reflection of the liberal bias, which was true of many of the translators, and many of whom did not believe in a literal virgin birth uh, of, of, of the Messiah. And so they, they, they translate it that way. And in a, in some sense, that is not an illegitimate translation, but there are other factors that indicate that it should be understood, uh, as, as a virgin. Well, the same kind of thing happens when you get into some of the words and terminology, the things that are translated in the New Testament, for example, when we talk about some of the words that we have seen in, in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, words like ch- uh, choose and words like predestination, these also have a history. And we'll see when we get into the study of predestination that it is a translation of a word that is only used about six or seven times in the New Testament, praharizo, and it does not mean predestination in the sense of God selecting those whose destiny would be heaven and selecting those whose destiny would be the lake of fire. Uh, that was the result of Jerome, who was one of the early church fathers who translated the Old and New Testaments into Latin. That which is known as the Vulgate was his translation, and he chose to translate praharizo as uh, predestio. And so that's where that idea came in. And because he was more of a determinist in his slant, that affected theology. And and even though there were debates in the Roman Catholic period between those who were uh, more deterministic and those that were less deterministic, it really shaped things. And as I pointed out, this had a great impact on both Martin Luther, who started the uh, uh, Protestant Reformation, as well as John Calvin. And so to go back and try to rebuild word meanings from the ground up is important. The word for election that we'll discover is ekloge, is basically a transliteration from the Greek into the English elect. It's not a translation. You can hear eklekte, elect, you hear the, the similarity that they just brought the word over, like baptizo to baptism. Uh, it's not a translation, it's a transliteration. You avoid the issue by, by doing that. So uh, we're going to see that, that there are some things going on in the words here that are important. And as I studied through these words while I was gone, I took various things to read and to study and getting online and working through material in my um, uh, Logos Bible software, I came to realize that there were some interesting patterns that are going on in the text that if you just massage the translation of these words, it brings out a totally different perspective on what's happening in Ephesians chapter 1, one which I think better fits the purpose of this epistle. And so we will look at that. As we go along, so one of the things we will discover as we go into this that when we look at this word that is translated choice uh, or to choose, he chose us in him, that that choice is in him. It's a phrase that has to be understood. And as I pointed out last time, this has a corporate significance as opposed to an individual significance. And what we'll see next time is that this does not involve selection for 
uh, eternal life. It involves the selection of those in the body of Christ for a specific destiny. So last time we look, just looked at these verses that there's a praise for the Father, uh, provided for the Father, and verses 3 through 6 ending with a praise statement in verse 6. Now, yesterday, was it yesterday? Friday. Friday after I... Uh, Got on the airplane coming out of uh, coming out of Kiev. I had gotten an email from Logos Bible Software blog, and they do this uh, every day. You get different emails. Half the time, they're not worth looking at. This was kind of an interesting one, and since I'm sitting in the airplane and I didn't have, really have a whole lot to do, we were sitting there for the first thirty minutes because there was bad weather in Amsterdam, so we weren't. Uh, given permission to take off uh, at that point. So I sat there and I read, read the blog. And it was actually an excerpt from a book that was uh, written by a former homiletics uh, professor of mine uh, at Dallas Seminary, a man who had great influence on the teaching of preaching, on the teaching, that's what homiletics means, it's the study of preaching, and he had a great influence from the time of the early 60s. In fact, he transformed the way in which preaching was understood at Dallas Seminary. In the early years of Dallas Seminary, the primary, um, the primary uh, professor of uh, verse-by-verse teaching was a man named Elwood Evans, J. Elwood Evans, and his claim to fame for some of you was that he was the very first pastor of a church in Houston called Baraka Church. He had, as a young man, a shock of red hair, so everybody called him Red Evans, and he married John Walvoord's wife's sister. John Walvoord became the president of Dallas Seminary, so that just sort of a... uh, a nepotistic thing going on there at, at Dallas Seminary, but uh, uh, Dr. Evans was the dean of men when I was a student there, so I knew him. In fact, I knew all of the pa- pastors who uh, were at Baraka Church over the years because the chaplain at the time was another man, Dick Sumi, who was the second pastor of Baraka Church. And so uh, he was, uh, as I said, was, was the chaplain. But anyway, Evans taught a more exegetically based style of teaching and preaching verse by verse, whereas Haddon Robinson came along and he would ridicule that and he would say other things. And those of us who came out of a background where there was more teaching, uh, we weren't real thrilled with Haddon Robinson. And and it wasn't that he always said things that were wrong or or. or that he wanted to take you away from the, take people away from the text of scripture because that wasn't his view, but that's the practical implication of, of, of that. And so I think it was dangerous in its impact and it has had this impact for the last 50 years. And I do not believe that Bible churches today are more biblically knowledgeable, more theologically astute, or more consistent in their application than they were 50 years ago. In fact, I think they're much, much, much worse. And I think part of the responsibility for that 
lies in the influence this man had on how the Bible was was taught. He often emphasized application in such, such a way that the students who went out to preach minimized the details of the text in order to uh, maximize what they believed was uh, application, and it was a superficialization of application. So in this blog yesterday, uh, though he said some things that were true, uh, there's something that caused me to think about what I do. I always reevaluate every what I do. Every pastor does and should. Every day you should think, am I really serving the Lord the best that I can? Do I Am I improving my craft? Am I uh, expanding my ability to communicate and make the word uh, clear? And am I expanding my knowledge of the word? On the positive side in this blog, he said the following. He said, good sermons are nailed to the text. They are biblical. If we don't preach the Bible, we have nothing to preach. If you want to preach politics, there are better people out there who can preach politics. If you want to preach psychology, there are better psychologists on television. But we can preach the Bible. The danger of preaching the Bible, if there is a danger, is that it's all about the long ago and far away. So people hear sermons and they leave sitting in judgment on Abraham for going down to Egypt or they're upset with Jonah because he ran away from God. And we never get to where the people in the pew are. Well, there's a lot of things I could say critiquing that, but in some sense he's true, and especially in those who are more what I would call doctrinal teachers, that there's a tendency to get so far into the weeds that you lose sight of what the yard looks like. Okay? You lose, and that's, these overviews are what should give us that framework for understanding how we change our thinking and how we are to live the spiritual life. And that ultimately it comes down to details. Everything does. And so, but often what happens in preaching, they sacrifice the details so that you don't really come away with as much confidence in the word as you should. And often the really profound questions are, are not addressed. As a matter of fact, as I was looking at this section of Ephesians, I skimmed through several well-known radio preachers, graduates of Dallas Seminary and others that are said to be great, uh, great preachers and homileticians. And I found that most of them preached Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 in one message. Many, if they didn't, it was only two messages. And on a rare occasion, three messages. But the concepts and the ideas that are in first Corinth, I mean, first, excuse me, Ephesians chapter one are so profound and people are so confused about them. What does it mean that God chose us? Don't I have a volitional responsibility? Didn't I uh, believe in the gospel? What role does that have? What does this word predestination mean? And uh, their concepts are front-loaded with deterministic ideas. And so uh, Dr. Robinson says, I find that expository preachers often do not really ask, what's the purpose of this sermon? I think he's right there. I think no matter how detailed you get, you ought to ask that question and say, in the bottom line here, how does all this detail affect how you 
think and how you shape your uh, spiritual life. And so as I thought about that, uh, at the same time, I'm reading through Ephesians 1 and studying all of these words, and I thought, boy, I could, I've been gone two weeks. Everybody's been thinking about other things. It is difficult to think through these issues, and I'm just, as I'm working through it, I'm coming up with with a lot of insight into what's happening throughout this whole first, this whole section of Ephesians, the first three, three chapters. But this, is, my approach is very different from those that you will hear in most churches. Most churches today have rejected the idea of verse by verse Bible teaching. Uh, they do not get into word studies in the pulpit. They do not talk about theological controversies. The popular thing today is to have short series of five, six, seven, or no more than eight messages on with practical titles such as how to have a uh, successful marriage, how to uh, raise children that are respectful and will have a good life, uh, how to... Um, uh, be happy in times of trouble. Uh, all of these kinds of things are good, but they also tend to reduce the Bible into just sound bites and advertising and as if the Bible is nothing more than a book to solve your problems, not much different from a psychologist book. And the sad thing is that the result of this kind of pulpit preaching has led to a biblically illiterate Christianity and evangelicalism. They are not doctrinally astute, and they are spiritually immature. And we can see a contrast between the church of today, 2019, your average Bible church, compare it to the average Bible church of 1960, and I think that we would have to admit that whatever's been going on in most pulpits in the last uh, almost 60 years is, uh, is tragic. It has not produced a more knowledgeable or more application-minded uh, con- congregation. So as we look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, I want to look at some things that I've noticed because I want to go back. I've done a little bit of an overview of this, but I want to go back again and just talk about some things that we see in this in this passage on the basis of what I'm learning on these these word meanings and the significance of that. That when we don't go with the first blush suggestion in the lexicons, if we read more deeply in some of the expanded works, we can indeed find some insight that shifts the focus of these chapters. Often I find that if you come to these verses with a preset Calvinistic focus or even an Arminian focus, what happens is you tend to think that this is all about what God did in the past, and that is far from the truth. This section is all about what God has called us to be in the future, 
what our destiny is, what God is doing in this unique church age in order to accomplish that which he intends to accomplish in the in the history of mankind. And so uh, we look at these these passages, and especially the first three or four verses, God sets the stage for us to understand this magnificent appointment that he has made for the church. We have been, the church, those who are in the church, have been appointed to a mission, and we have been commissioned to carry that out. And these words like appointment and commission are very much part of the lexical uh, lexical nuances that are available for looking at these words that have been translated more often than not in in these um, deterministic uh, fashion. But this is about the church. If you read through Ephesians, how can you not conclude that this epistle is all about the church? And from the get-go, when Paul says that uh, we have been chosen in him, that that is talking about this body of believers. Last time I used the illustration, let's say you're looking down a street and you see one address on one side, and that's Old Testament saints, and you see an address on the other side in this house, and that's the New Testament church. And when this passage is talking about this destiny or this commission that God has, he talks about the commission or the mission of those Old Testament saints. That's a group. That is a um, a body, that, uh, the Israelites. That's what you have in, in the Old Testament. And this is a corporate idea. And then on the other side, he says those who are in that address, those who are in the church, they have a destiny. And the rest of this epistle breaks this open as to what this, what this uh, destiny is really all about. So I want us to just go through some of these sections and see how this will sort of reshape the way that we are um, thinking about what Paul says. And when you read it, it will perhaps give you a new insight. We'll get into the details, and I'll give you some uh, refined translations based on this. And it's not just me. You, there are a number of other translators uh, and translations that you can get in print that are commercial that follow this same language. It's not just uh, the Calvinistic bent on your top five or six major translations. And um, uh, I have had the privilege to know a number of professors. We're going to have one, I hope, speak at the Chafer Conference, uh, Alan Ross. I remember when I first had Dr. Ross for some classes when I was in seminary. He had just come back from spending the summer uh, working with the on the translation committee for the NIV. And the NIV was a translation by committee, he used to say. And he said, I just wish that in a number of places I could put an asterisk and said, this is the word of God by a vote of five to four. People don't understand what happens in translation, and these things are not, uh, as a translation, they're not set. Uh, they're, they're not set in concrete. So when we look at these first verses, from verse three to verse six, I want to look at a couple of key phrases that I have highlighted here. 
For example, in Christ, in 1-3, we have been blessed in Christ. That's a corporate term. When you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are identified, that's baptism, identified, Paul says in Romans 6, 3 through 3 and 4, we're identified with Christ's death on the cross, and we are placed in him. That is uniquely Pauline vocabulary. We are in him. This is our new position, and it is our new identity, and it is the corporate church the entity of all believers that make up the body of Christ because they have been placed in him. So from the get-go, he's talking about this group, those who are in Christ. He says, just as he, and notice this phrase, chose us in him. Now, one of the things that we'll see here is that this is not uh, focusing on a concept of selection of people for individual salvation, but appointment to our service in the body of Christ. As we study this word chose, what we will see is it is almost always, in fact, one lexicographer says that among four or five characteristics of this word, the one he brings out is about its fourth characteristic, which I'll show you next time, is that it always emphasizes the purpose, the quality of the uh, of the person chosen for fulfilling the purpose. Now that contrasts with Calvinism where it's an arbitrary selection, whereas he says in every case you have an emphasis on the quality. It's those who are choice. Uh, we've gone through the what I call the doctrine of the magnum bar, as I discovered this years ago, asking my guide in Israel, what does this phrase mean on the on the magnum bar? And he said, select or choice almonds. That emphasizes the quality of the almond. It is not the process of I'm choosing this one and I'm not choosing that one. It is focusing on there's some quality in the almond that fits a standard And what we'll see is that quality is the possession of the righteousness of Christ. So this has to do with appointment to a task, to service. And then the next is that what the goal is in terms of our practical application, that we should be holy, that is set apart and without blame. So this is talking about the fact that as believers, we are to grow and mature in such a way that we can serve the Lord effectively. Now, let me tell you something. One thing I discovered years ago is that most Christians are really happy living a rather elementary Christian life. They're happy being a spiritual kindergartner or a spiritual first grader. And I would suggest that we won't have a show of hands, but if I were to poll the congregation that when most of you were six, seven, eight, nine, ten years of age, you couldn't wait till you were an adult and had the privileges and opportunities that adults have, and you were beginning to chafe at the bit a little bit because you were restricted at being treated like a child. But the funny thing is when people get over into the Christian life, they want to stay a child. Real life, we know, is when you're an adult, when you can have adult privileges and responsibilities and then make something of those opportunities. But most Christians are happy just being in the nursery. I often quote Earl Rodmacher, former president of, of uh, 
uh, Western Conservative Baptist Seminary, and he said in a pastor's conference, the pastor's conferences we still have, he said once that the church is the largest nursery in the world and the nursery workers, that is the pastors, don't know how to get the babies out of diapers. The other side of that is the babies don't want to get out of diapers. They want to stay there. They don't want to grow up. And so what we see here is that we've been chosen for a purpose. To be holy without blame means that we have experientially matured in our spiritual growth. And then we have a participle with that word predestined that everybody immediately says, well, God chose whether I would be saved or not. And so if it's appointed in verse 4, the idea of praharizo here, word used only six times, we'll look at those, This has the idea of being commissioned to something as a group, that those in the body of Christ, those who live at that address called in Christ, they have a mission. It's not talking about how they get into the address. It's talking about after being in the address, what the mission of those people uh, is. And this has the idea of emphasizing uh, the future uh, responsibilities and benefits. And then there's the word adoption as sons. Now, this is, all of these should entail at least one message of explanation. Adoption as son comes out of, the biblical idea really merges ideas from both the Greek concept of adoption and the Roman concept of adoption. But the bottom line is those who are adopted into God's family uh, after After that occurs, they have an inheritance. So all of a sudden what we're shifting gears on here is talking about what our future inheritance is, and that involves our our roles and responsibilities not only in the kingdom when Jesus comes but into eternity. I've just spent the last uh, week really talking about all of this in Kiev and teaching about this. So this adoption as sons is a is a critical aspect in understanding our our inheritance. So the focus of all of this is on where God's taking us, not in this life, but in our resurrection bodies and the return of Jesus to establish the kingdom and on into eternity. We're in the preparatory stage now. We're like in boot camp. If you've been in the military, you know that if you go through boot camp, there's some people who do well, some people who don't. How well you do determines your your uh, what future schools you can go to, what future options you have. And if you don't do so well, then you have limited options and you're just going to be cannon fodder. Um, so these are, this is a, a rough analogy to the Christian life. Those who do well and uh, are rewarded accordingly and are overcomers, they're going to have greater options and responsibilities in the kingdom. And those that don't, well, they're still saved, but they don't have those, those, those same options. And all of this is to demonstrate the glory of God's grace. Again and again through this epistle, we see this emphasis on grace And it's by this grace that we have been accepted in the beloved, again emphasizing that corporate, that corporate identity. Then we get into the next section. And in this section, again, I'll point out the words that we see here. We see this word in him, again, emphasizes what we have in Christ. This is our positional forgiveness, the realization of redemption, another key word that very few people spend time talking about. 
and uh, and and a lot of Christians and a lot of churches will talk about redemption because that's a biblical word. If they can use that many syllables, then they'll they'll repeat that. But they really don't know exactly what redemption means and its correlation to forgiveness of sins. But then we read, just as we saw in verse six, that this has to do with the riches, the abundance of God's grace. And so it all comes back to emphasizing the undeserved and unmerited uh, favor of God. And so this goes back to glorious grace in verse 6, and uh, this passage here the, on the, uh, the riches of grace. Then we recognize that this is going to be based on something radically new. Verse 9, we read, because it was made known to us, the mystery of his will. And as soon as people see that, they think in terms of mysticism. They think in terms of, well, we can't really understand it. And the word mystery just basically means previously unrevealed truth, unrevealed information, that nowhere in the Old Testament was there any hint that there would be a second body of believers called the church in the future, and God would have a plan for them that was separate and distinct uh, from Israel. And so we have this new, this new revelation that we have in the New Testament. And, uh, in fact, we have again in verse 9 the word purpose, but this isn't really purpose. It's eudikia, which means God's pleasure. And so we'll have to talk about that. That's the same, uh, word for purpose that we have back in, um, well, in, in the New King James, they translate good pleasure of his will down here, but in some translations, that's uh, purpose. So it's, it's eudikia, which good pleasure is close enough for now. Uh, then we come to the next section, uh, still talking about what we have in Christ. So we see that repeated again in Christ in verse, middle of verse 10, in him at the end of verse 10. And then at the beginning of verse 11, repeating it again, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Notice that. Now we're moving full bore into this whole issue of our inheritance, that which we will receive at the Bema, at the judgment seat of Christ, those rewards, those privileges, possessions, assets that will be ours as we serve Christ on into the future. So it, and then it's another participle for predestined. So we have to understand this. And it's really, we've obtained this by being commissioned. That's really the idea, as close as I can get, or appointed uh, as members of the body of Christ, we've received this mission. It's the great commission we refer to in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Well, that's part of the destiny of those who identify with Christ through faith, uh, faith in him, and that this is going to be to the praise of his glory. So we have a repetition of glory again when we come to verse 12. And then we get to the last part here, and this is a wrap-up related to uh, verses related to the Holy Spirit. And notice what it says here. Uh, in him also you trusted after you heard the word of truth. Notice, you didn't trust because you were chosen or predestined. You trusted after you heard the word of truth. And that's really important because in Calvinism, they put the concept of trust or faith after regeneration. 
But that's not what happens. If you read the verse in uh, in Acts talking about uh, the Berean believers, it says that they didn't uh, just believe what Paul said. They went back and they searched the scriptures daily. Most times we stop there. But the next verse says, therefore they believed. Wow. You search the scriptures and then you believe. That's the order. That's the same order that you have here. It is hearing the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, uh, in whom also having believed, so now we go look at the results, and we're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Promise focuses on there's something coming that isn't fulfilled. It is connected often in Scripture to the concept of hope, that hope in the Scripture means a a, a certain expectation, a confident expectation of something that will be received in the future. And so all through here what we see is this this uh, the subtext is live today in light of eternity. Live today in light of your mission. Live today in light of what God has has commissioned you to do as a member of the body of Christ. It's all about the future. And so one of the things that I sort of skipped over a minute ago is that when we're looking at uh, at if this section in Ephesians, let me see, talking about Christ... We're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, and he's the guarantee, guarantor of our inheritance. As part of our being in Christ, we are seated with him, and this is picked up again in verse 6 of Ephesians 2, that we are to, when we're saved, we are raised up together. This is our position in Christ. We're raised up together, and we're made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is distinct. No believer in all of history ever had this privilege. We are Our position, your position, my position right now is we're seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ. That's phenomenal. This shows the, 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 the superlative distinctions of, of church-age believers. This is our identity uh, in Christ for a purpose, and that is that in the ages to come, he might show the riches of his grace and his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And I don't, it's ages to come. I don't think that's just limited. Paul's writing at the beginning of the church age. I think this, he's talking about this, uh, uh, demonstration of the riches of God's grace comes in the millennial kingdom and on into the eternal, eternal state. So we, there's a commission, a purpose for our being, uh, selected in the church, that body of Christ. And that is explained. We love Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but we forget that it's not the whole sentence. And verse 10 comes along and says, for we are his workmanship created. There's that phrase again, in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, this isn't legalism. This is the spiritual life. We're to live the spiritual life, grow and mature, and God is going to work in us. And he prepared these works uh, ahead of time that we should walk in them. That's the Christian life. Walking is going to be the key word in Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6. It's all about the Christian life, and that's where it comes along. And then if you skip down a little bit, 
And Ephesians 2.19, we read, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers. Now, he's been talking about we, primarily referring to Jewish believers and what they had because chronologically they were saved first in the early part of Acts. And now he's talking to these Gentiles and say, See, same thing applies to you. You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is distinctive. And again, he's, he's arguing that, that you've got to get a hold of who you are in Christ because that's going to tell you the answer to all your little application questions. How do you have a better marriage? You get a hold of the fact that you're in Christ and what that means. How do you rear your children? You have to come to grips with who you are in Christ and what your mission as a parent is uh, biblically, and that is going to answer your question. But if you don't know the Bible, then getting some superficial points that anybody can give on any talk show without any knowledge of the Bible isn't going to get you anywhere. It's just nothing more than motivation and motivational psychology, and it has nothing to do uh, with the Bible. And we recognize that in verses 19 and 20 that there's this, this whole new organism of the household of God that is built on the foundation of the prophets, I mean the apostles and prophets, that's New Testament apostles and prophets, and Jesus Christ, who is called later the choice one in Peter, he's the chief cornerstone. And the purpose of this in Ephesians 3, 6 is that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs there's our inheritance concept again of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So in verses 9 through 12 of Ephesians 3, all of this is so that we will understand the fellowship of this, this mystery, this previously unrevealed information about the church age that was hidden in the past but has now been revealed and this is part of the multidimensional wisdom of, of God. And verse 11, again, he repeats, in Christ Jesus, and in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. That leads us up to the beginning of Ephesians 4, 1, where he says, I therefore, in other words, before you really understand these practical things I'm getting ready to address, you have to understand everything in verse in the first three chapters because that shapes the way you think about life and you think about who you are and your identity. And it's not uh, whoever you thought you were before you were saved. You have a whole new purpose and a whole new identity. And that's what those first verses from 3 through 6 are talking about. So Paul introduces that next section. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Look at these words, calling. Again, this is a word that relates to that concept of purpose, and it relates to that concept of our mission, that the church, those who are in that address of the church have been given a mission, and that is their uh, that is their purpose statement, is this calling. Now look at how these things tie together. We've looked at Romans 8, 28 to 30 the last few weeks as we've been talking about foreknowledge and its relationship to predestination, that in Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Same language we find in Ephesians 1, so we're going to have to take time 
Uh, that's why we take time with those words. For, and then he gives us the process. There's a chain of events. First of all, he knew things ahead of time. That's what foreknowledge means, prognosco, simply to know beforehand. For whom he foreknow, then the next step, not predestined to uh, eternity in heaven or eternity in the lake of fire, but if we're going to use the word predestined, it's predest- the church is predestined to be conformed to Christ whose body we are. Uh, really a better term is that, that we've been appointed to be like Christ, the appointment of the church. That is uh, the mission for every single believer, and that, that's what God's working on. And so it, uh, pre, the uh, proorizo is not the same as prognosco. They're two distinct things. And, and what happens when you read a lot of commentaries is they blow past foreknowledge. They say, well, God can't foreknow what he hasn't predestined. And then they start talking about predestination and they ignore that what this is saying is the first step has to do with God's omniscience. And so uh, it's our purpose is that God, it's sanctification. God wants us to be conformed to Christ. And so those who he has uh, destined to be conformed to Christ, he, these he called. Uh, that has to do with being given that mission, and these he justified, the only word that's not used in Ephesians, and then these he also glorified. So the bottom line is we have to come down to what Romans 12.2 says, is that the issue in the Christian life is that we have to change, overhaul, our thinking. Don't be conformed to the world. Every one of us has been pressed into the way the world thinks about everything. And what Paul is saying here is what happens once you become a Christian is you have to be re-educated. You have to rethink everything from the ground up. You have to be able to evaluate what your presuppositions are and the dangerous ideas you picked up because that's what your mother said, that's what your father said, that's what your ignorant best friend in fourth grade said and you thought it sounded good. And we have to get rid of all of these different ideas and we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, not our emotions, but our thinking. We have to study. We have to reflect. This doesn't happen just overnight. It doesn't happen because we get motivational messages. That happens because we come to understand the Word of God, and then we internalize it in our lives. And then once our thinking is changed, our lives change, and then they demonstrate, that's the word prove, that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. And so this gives you an idea how critical these initial passages are and why it's important to drill down and understand because of so much that is said and translated wrongly with words like uh, choosing and words like predestination and uh, inheritance and possessions and calling All of these need to be thought through very carefully in terms of how these words were used in the first century, how they were used historically from the Old Testament, so that we can clarify what the Bible is teaching with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to uh, reflect on this and just to marvel at, at the intricacies of your word like the intricacies of creation. And that even though we can understand at one level, each time we go through it, it drives us deeper and deeper. And we come away with just profound awe of your your majesty and what you have called us as church-age believers to be and to do. 
and that we have a mission in life that's not about us. It's not about how we feel. It's not about uh, what we do. It's not about the cars we drive or the houses we live in, the jobs we have or the education we get. Not that those are bad, but, Father, you've called us to use all these things to be transformed renewing our mind with your word that we may serve you, preparing for a, a, an eternity of serving you and glorifying you. Father, there may be some here today, some listening to this message online that have never truly understood the gospel of grace, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Sin caused us to be spiritually dead, and we have no future except the lake of fire. But because Christ paid the penalty for sin, if we believe in him, if we trust in him and him alone for salvation, then everything changes. Then that uh, spiritual death is changed by a new birth. We become a new creature in Christ with a new mission, a new identity, a new destiny, and that you are conforming us to his image and that we will have eternity with you and sin will be no more. Father, we pray that you would make this clear to whomever might be listening and that for those of us who have been believers for a short time or a long time, that you would challenge us with our glorious purpose in the body of Christ, our mission in him. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.